one of the pastors over at Sovereign Hope Church, and it's a real gift to be able to uh, worship with you here this morning. Um, we're grateful for that, and um, it's a real privilege to get a chance to look at this passage of Scripture with you this morning. So um, let's go ahead and start uh, by praying once more before we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, your word is so precious because in it we see our precious Savior. Lord, there are not words that we could say that would be adequate to give you the praise you deserve. And there are no arguments I could make that could transform a heart. Uh, We're needy and dependent on you. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would be pleased to use this time to transform us. By your spirit, through your word, increase our affections for Jesus and for one another. And may the result be worship, trust, and may we love others with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Once when I was maybe six years old, um, my mom asked me to go to her room. And um, I didn't know what I had done, but I knew what that normally meant. So I went to her room, and I nervously anticipated the wooden spoon. Um, So finally, I took matters into my own hands. I went, and I found that wooden spoon, and I snapped it over my knee, and I hit it. Now, pretty quickly, I realized that didn't actually solve anything. Um, When my mom came into the room, my little guilty conscience couldn't take it anymore, and I confessed what I had done to the spoon. And it was at that point that my mom compassionately informed me that she hadn't been intending to discipline me for anything. She just wanted to chat with me about something. And further to my surprise, my mom treated my breaking of the spoon with undeserved grace. And so my point is that I had wrong assumptions about how my mom was going to respond to my sin. And um, now we all know that God, like my mom, doesn't like sin. But how does he respond to us when we do sin? Is he angry? Is he disappointed? Does he put you into a sort of divine timeout until you have felt bad enough or done enough to come back into his favor? Or because you're a believer... Does he just ignore your sin? Does he just not let it bother him anymore? Well, our passage today starts with John telling us not to sin. And we're going to read that real quick here. Let's read 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the goal of this passage, the reason John is writing, is so that you don't sin. And that's because sin is a big deal. Now, when you think of sin, you might think of adultery or murder, uh, maybe drunkenness. Um, But sin is a much bigger deal than most of us have ever really considered. Listen to one pastor's definition of sin. Sin is... The glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, 
the person of God, not loved. So sin is not just uh, breaking some rules. It's a serious heart problem. It's a worship problem. Sin is personal. It's committed against a personal God because we don't trust him. We think we can do better on our own. So John wants to give us a clear warning. Do not sin. But then he immediately follows it up with, but if anyone does sin. So John wants to warn us, but he also wants to help get us back on track when we do sin. And we're going to see Jesus as our advocate is central to understanding not only God's posture towards us when we sin, but also what our posture needs to be towards God and other sinners if we're going to heed the warning to not sin. So our main point today is this. God's love for sinners enables our love for God and sinners. So God's love for sinners enables our love for God and sinners. It's only in understanding God's love that we can then respond in love for God. And love for God inevitably looks like loving the sinners that he loves. This is the alternative. This is what replaces the sin that John warns us about. And we'll see the centrality of Jesus in all of this in three points. Jesus is our advocate, our advocate is trustworthy, and our advocate is loving. So first we're going to see what our hope is when we do sin. Jesus as our advocate. Let's read verse 1 again and then verse 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now we love the concept of an advocate. Uh, We celebrate it when someone stands up for the vulnerable or the marginalized and defends them. But do you realize that you need an advocate? And you need an advocate not because of injustice that's done against you, but because of the injustice that we've committed against God. So we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills this role as our advocate. Notice how John said we have an advocate with the Father. Now John already used this phrase in chapter 1 to talk about Jesus in eternity past, how he was with the Father. But what's different now? Well, after he died and he rose again, he ascended into heaven with his resurrected body so that now he is with the Father, but he's there now forever as one of us. Do you realize that when the Son chose to took on flesh, to take on flesh and become one of us, he was making a decision that would affect who he is forever. He bound himself to humanity forever. He is our brother forever. So he is with the Father once again, but now he is there as one of us. And why does this matter? Well, we all know that Jesus' death and resurrection are essential to our faith. But have you ever considered how essential it is that the God-man Jesus Christ is in heaven right now? In heaven with the Father, he is our mediator and our high priest and our advocate. As our high priest, he has offered the decisive sacrifice for our sins. As our mediator, he's bridged the chasm between us and God. But as our advocate, he not only stands between us and God, but he comes and stands alongside us before the Father as one of us. When a believer sins, 
Jesus takes up our case before the Father as our advocate. It's not just something that he did in the past. This is something he currently does for us when we sin. Right now, at this very moment, he's with the Father and yet comes and stands with us as one of us. If you've ever traveled to a place where English isn't the main language, then you know the difficulty of getting directions when you can't communicate or be understood. I remember navigating through the Paris airport, um, and I was all alone and just felt really vulnerable. It was a relief if I came across someone who spoke English and could help me. And the worst was when you tried to get directions from one of the French airport employees because they were so annoyed at having to talk to a pathetic American that they just, you didn't know if they were really listening, if you could really trust the directions that they gave. Well, does your guilt over sin ever leave you feeling isolated or confused? Like you just want to hear someone tell you the way to reassure you that everything's going to be okay. But even if someone did tell you that you and God are okay, you don't know if you can trust their words because maybe they don't get the full picture. Maybe they don't fully understand the magnitude of your sin or at that moment how numb you might feel towards God. But Jesus understands us fully. As God, he understands our situation, our guilt perfectly. And yet, as a man, he has the ability to come alongside us as our advocate. But what exactly does he do as our advocate? Let's read verse 2 again. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the way that he helps us is found in the word propitiation. This is a unique word that's only used four times in the New Testament. So what does it mean? Well, propitiation refers to Jesus satisfying God's wrath against us by sacrificing himself on the cross. And I was in a courtroom once during a sentencing, and in the closing statements, the defense lawyer got up, and he, even though he knew that his client was guilty, he requested that the judge simply forgive the man. He urged him to not give him any punishment. Now, that lawyer was a very merciful advocate. He knew what his client had done. He knew the laws that had been broken. And he still requested forgiveness on his client's behalf. But that forgiveness would have cost the lawyer nothing. You see, Jesus is such a unique advocate because he's the propitiation for our sins. He paid for it himself. Our forgiveness cost him the ultimate price. And that's because for Jesus to be our advocate first, he had to die. Our son Jim's middle name is Adoniram, and he's named after Adoniram Judson. Um, Adoniram and Ann Judson were missionaries to Burma in the early 1800s. And when war broke out between England and Burma, uh, Adoniram was suspected of being a spy, and he was taken off to a death camp. And from the moment that he was arrested, his wife Ann became an advocate for him. She was constantly pounding on the door of every government official's house trying to plead for her husband to get anything she could to make his situation better. So she suffered extreme hardship, but then when the war was over, Adoniram was finally released. But Anne, because of all the suffering she'd endured, she died. And she had advocated for Adoniram based off of his innocence. He was completely innocent. But Jesus did just the opposite. His death enabled him to advocate for the guilty because in his death he satisfied the wrath of God against us. 
And so this is propitiation. God's wrath towards us turned into his favor on us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now you may find Jesus' self-sacrifice to be noble and beautiful, but in propitiation you have to recognize what Jesus is saving us from, and it's God's own wrath. So we need to think about the significance of God's wrath for a moment before we can really understand the love of our advocate. Now for God to be a God of wrath can be really hard to accept. Um, It can be offensive to many people. Have you ever heard someone say, um, I don't like the idea of an angry God? Or, well, my God is a God of love. Why does God's wrath not sit right with us? Well, one reason is very understandable, and that's the sinfulness of man's wrath. How many times have we experienced the sinful anger of a family member or a friend or a boss? And what about our own anger? So often we attempt to replace God with ourselves at the center of the universe. We say things like, how could they treat me like this? What do they want from me? I deserve better. I feel vindicated in my wrath when I'm not getting my own way. It's worship of self that motivates me to try to control or punish others for not getting on board and worshiping me too. But God in all of his holiness is the only one who is never hypocritical in his wrath. His wrath is completely pure and just. And so God's wrath isn't sinful, but how do we reconcile his wrath with his love? You see, what seems to be fundamentally at odds with God's love is actually the one place where we can truly begin to understand God's love. So how does Jesus satisfy the wrath of God? Well, we all know Jesus died for our sins. For many of us, that's kind of white noise when we hear it. But do you realize that how he died for our sins was by becoming sin for us? He was made to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus was entirely without sin. In all of his moral perfections, he knew nothing but the intimate love and fellowship of his Father. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He has not left me alone. Yet on the cross, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No other believer has ever been forsaken by God. So why did God forsake his son? Because Jesus was being crushed for our iniquities. There are scenes from my life that I would be embarrassed for a complete stranger to look at. And my Lord didn't just look at it. He put it on. He assumed the guilt for my sin before his Holy Father as if to say, Father, treat me as if I did it. Every harsh word, I did it. Every self-serving lie, I did it. Every lustful look at a screen, I did it. But it wasn't even just my external sinful actions that he took upon himself. He represented my sinful heart. My pure and innocent Lord stood in my place, clothed in all my blasphemous sin against his Father, so that on the cross he willingly became the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the person of God not loved. Do you see the offense of our sin? Can you imagine our filth placed on our Lord? 
The righteous son who had never known a moment of his father's displeasure at once became the object of his wrath until finally it was finished. Because on the cross he presented our sin before the father in our place, now in heaven he presents his righteousness before the father in our place. And now all the pleasure of the father towards his son has been extended to us to anyone who is converted to Christ. Verse says he is the propitiation, not he was. So if his wrath-satisfying sacrifice was made 2,000 years ago, then in what way is he currently the propitiation for our sins? Well, again, when you sin as a believer, how does God think about you? What is his posture towards you? Is he displeased? Or is it just no longer a big deal? You see, Christ's sacrifice is in the past. If you are a believer, then yes, your justification is in the past. But your sins of today have not become any less offensive to God. Jesus' death satisfies the wrath of God against our sins today because he is applying the cross to our sins today. We sing a song called Before the Throne of God Above. And the first verse says this, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Do you recognize what your Lord does for you every day? Do you see his love and what he's doing for you right now? He sees your your sins today and advocates for you. The wrath your sins deserves is satisfied afresh as Jesus applies the cross to you before the Father. Trust in your advocate. Because there was no one to defend him when he hung on the cross, now he takes up our defense and is heard. And the father is not an unwilling participant in all of this. The son isn't calming down an irritable father. Look with me a few chapters later at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. Do you see how different this love is from all of our imaginations of love? The willing humiliation of the son, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice of Jesus for your sins, this is love. But the real reason that it's love is not only that God made you right with him, That's only a means to an ultimate end. John also says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. God the Father gave his Son for you so that through propitiation you might receive adoption. If you are converted, then through the sacrifice of the Son, you have been brought into the family of God. All of this is your heavenly Father's delight. So when you feel convicted because you realize that you've sinned, what needs to change in your response? Where do you need to take God's displeasure at sin more seriously? Where do you need to stop trying to atone for your sin yourself by feeling bad enough or doing something good enough as a kind of penance? Where should humbly receiving his grace produce greater worship and thankfulness for your advocate? If you are converted to Christ, then your conversion is all about God's love for sinners. And this is important because later in our passage, we're going to be asked to love sinners. 
And so it's with this window into God's love for you that we then turn to what it, start, what it looks like to have God's love in you. And this brings us to our next point. Our advocate is trustworthy. Remember that John said that our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. We looked at how he is like one of us, but he's also not like us in that he's righteous. And this is the very thing that qualifies him to step in when we sin. He's able to plead for us because he doesn't plead based off of our merits, but off of his own merits, off of his perfect life and the way that he walked. John started by warning us not to sin, and we're going to see what that life of not walking in sin looks like, and it looks like walking in the way Jesus walked. So let's read verses 3 to 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we see here that the life of someone who has Jesus as their advocate is a life of obedience to Jesus. So obedience comes, or disobedience comes from thinking you can navigate life without your advocate. But instead, we need to trust him and his way for our lives. And there's a built-in warning here. John so wants you to have the relief of knowing Christ's advocacy counts for you. But that introduces a problem. Does Christ's advocacy count for you? William Wilberforce was an advocate for slaves um, in the 18, early 1800s. Eventually, his advocacy led to Parliament's abolition of slavery. And when slaves in the United States heard about it, they heard good news, but it didn't count for them. Wilberforce's advocacy didn't extend to them because they were under a different authority. So how can you have assurance that everything we just saw in the good news of Jesus' advocacy, how can we know it counts for you? Just like in chapter 1, John addresses this by giving us tests to evaluate if we're truly converted. And the first test is this. Do you keep his commandments? John says if you don't keep his commandments, if you don't trust his way for you, then you don't know the advocate. John is showing us here that for someone who is truly converted, our relationship to obedience is all about our relationship to our advocate. Just like sin is personal, obedience is also personal. You can see this in the difference between the work of an employee versus the obedience of a child. An employee may or may not really know his boss. If you work remotely, you may never have even met your boss. It's not essential to get the job done. Your child's obedience, on the other hand, is based entirely in your relationship to them. They're a part of you. They really know you. You'll always be their father or mother. Look at all the words that John is using to describe this life of obedience to our advocate. There seems to be a progression from knowing to being in him to finally abiding in him. It's even interesting that he doesn't actually use the word obey. Instead, three times he uses the word keep. Now, the word keep, it includes obedience, but there's also this idea of holding fast to his word, cherishing it, guarding it. And maybe this challenges how you think about God's word. 
What normally motivates you to read the Bible? Is it to avoid guilt? Or to find some inspiration for your day? Or maybe it's even to know all the rules so you can make sure you don't disobey any of them. But what would have to change in your relationship to God's word for it to be characterized by words like cherish and holding fast or guarding it? Keeping his word isn't just acts of obedience. It includes the heart posture behind our obedience. And look at the ordering in these verses. What comes first, relationship or obedience? Let's read verse 3 again. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We see that coming to know our advocate precedes keeping commandments. In fact, there's a circular pattern here. If we know him, we will keep his commandments and thereby we'll know that we know him. Or if we abide in him, we will walk as he walked and then we'll know that we abide in him. Or if we have the love of God, we will keep his word which will complete the love of God in us. Think about why a newborn baby cries. One of our kids, when they were born, actually didn't cry right away, and all the nurses were rushing to see what was wrong. And why is that? Well, a baby cries because she already instinctively longs for her mother. But every time a baby's mother consoles her, it just reinforces the baby's attachment to her mother. She already knew she wanted mom, but her mother's love and care only increases her trust and dependence on mom. And similarly, when we know our advocate, we express our trust for him in obedience, which in turn just keeps assuring us of our relationship with him. Let's read the first part of verse 5 again. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now we normally think of perfection in terms of flawlessness, But this word carries the idea of being brought to completion or fulfillment. So the aim of the love of God is that his own love placed in you would be effective to to produce love in you. It would be active. So when you obey, it's the triumph of the love of God in you. So the love of God is not only the motivation for our obedience, but it's also the result of our obedience. As we walk with him, our affections will grow for him. A baby longs for mom and cries, but as her needs are met, she depends on mom even more. We love God and so we obey, but as we obey, we will love him even more. So where do you think about obedience in a way that's detached from your relationship to Jesus? Maybe obedience is divorced from it. You're all about doing your duty, but you're thinking more like a slave than a son. Or maybe you're so confident in God's grace, you're sure any emphasis on obedience is just legalism. But what evidence do you have that God's grace counts for you? Is your assurance biblical? So while God's love is freely given, those who have experienced his love are not free to stay the same. And we all want to experience perfect love like this, but it's actually experienced inside of obedience. We obey because our Father loves us and because it loves our Father. So we see the necessity of obedience. We know we can trust our advocate, but where do we start? Well, John is actually going to show us. He finishes verse 6 saying, we ought to walk in the same way Jesus walked. So we are to imitate Jesus. And now he's going to sum up that life of imitating Jesus with this one thing, Love of brother. 
Since our advocate loves sinners like us, now we too are called to love sinners through him. And this brings us to our final point. Our advocate is loving. Let's read verses 7 to 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here we see another test of conversion. Do you love or hate your brother? And brother here just means fellow believers. So just as in love Christ chose to become our brother, now we are to love every brother Christ welcomes into his family. And the absence of love for believers isn't neutrality, it's hate. Now at first glance, you probably don't feel like that relates to you, the thought that you hate your brother. But John is intentionally forcing us to evaluate ourselves with just these two categories. So where in your life does hate masquerade as something else? Maybe it's that extended family member who annoys you with their bad theology. Or maybe it's a brother who you feel judged by because they're holier than thou. Or maybe it's a brother you're judging because they're so worldly. Maybe it's a couple from your community group that you try to avoid because of a past conflict that you're still bitter over. It's not easy to love sinners even when that sinner is a brother. But John is pointing out an inconsistency. If you claim to be converted while still hating your brother, then you aren't converted. He repeats the word darkness five times. He doesn't leave any gray area. Your obedience to this command reveals that you are either in darkness or light. And why does John call this an old but new commandment? Well, the commandment is to love your brother is old in the sense that it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember in Leviticus how it says to love your neighbor as yourself. But it's also old because it's what these believers were taught when they first learned the gospel. Jesus taught that the greatest commands were to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But then, how is this also a new commandment? Well, let's look at Jesus' words in John 13, 34. Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The newness of a very old command is found in how Jesus has loved us. What's new about this is that for the first time, because of Jesus, we know what love really looks like because of how he's loved sinners through the cross. We've already seen what this looks like in our text. We've seen it in Christ, our advocate. And this love isn't like love at first sight. That love is based in the loveliness of the other person. There's something captivating or worthy in them to make you love them. But Christ's love is more like the love of a couple anxiously waiting to meet the little boy that they've chosen to adopt. 
They've never seen him. They have seen nothing lovely yet to justify the love they feel, but they've chosen to set their love on him. You see, Jesus' love is not a response to us, but to himself, to his own gracious relational character. And so we imitate Jesus in other-centered love for the same reason, in response to him. If he has loved us like this, when we have infinitely grieved and offended him with our sin, then how much more can we trust him and choose to love the sinners around us? Many years ago, um, my wife Patty and I went through a difficult season in our marriage. Um, She was going through postpartum depression and inner suffering. She was really withdrawn from me. It was really a disheartening season, and I didn't know what to do. But a couple of brothers helped me to see how Jesus has loved me. Our advocate came for us when we were resistant towards him. He served us when we wanted nothing to do with him. He came gently to us when we didn't respect him or give him what he deserved. Jesus' marriage to his bride isn't a 50-50 relationship where Jesus gives 50 and we give 50 and meet in the middle. Instead, Jesus gave 100% when we gave nothing. How empowering is that to our love for others? We have the resources to love sinners when they aren't reciprocating because our advocate is loving towards us. So to love in response to Jesus is to set aside our self-preservation and our rights and give of ourselves so that our brother might flourish. Because of what you've received and seen in Jesus, you can choose to love the rebelling child or the distant wife or the needy roommate or the withdrawn friend. And the amazing thing is that this others-oriented love actually does something for us too. As we trust our advocate and imitate his love, we experience the glory of God honored, the holiness of God reverenced, the promises of God believed, the commandments of God obeyed, the person of God loved. So your love for Jesus and your love for brother will rise or fall together in your heart. Your joy in the fellowship of your brother springs from the joy of fellowship with your, that you share with God so that all the doing of love flows out of this one heart's desire for him. Now, John has been very direct on the need to obey, and especially um, this command to love. This isn't optional. The commands aren't there only to point you to your need for Jesus. They are there to be obeyed. And what he says about being blinded and in darkness, it's sobering. It's heavy. Maybe John's tests have even left you questioning your conversion. When I look at my life, do I trust Jesus like this? Do I love my brother like this? But John anticipates this. His letter is challenging, and yet he's writing because he wants you to know you have eternal life. He is for you. He's full of affection for you. And so in a very pastoral way, he interrupts these tests with the most affectionate language he can. He gives us a poem. Let's read verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. 
I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. When I proposed to my wife, I used as many means as possible to ensure that she would say yes. My proposal plan involved a blindfold, a trip to our favorite bridge, a picnic lunch, a blue topaz ring, a guitar, a digital camera. I even had a photo printer in my car hooked into the cigarette lighter. And so, when it, but when it came time to ask her the question, at the pivotal moment, I proposed to her by singing her a song that I'd written for her. I used the language that best communicated my love to her, um, hoping that she would commit herself to me. And did you see how John is using poetry to communicate his affection and encouragement to them? He's confident in who they are in Christ, and he wants them to share his confidence. This encouragement helps us to see what we've already learned and what we already have. It only serves to renew our commitment to Jesus. And this encouragement is for every believer. Did you see the different stages of Christian maturity that he was talking to? Some are still children, others are further and further along. But all believers, even the youngest in the faith, have this assurance, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Remember, Jesus has so bound himself to us that what happens to us happens to his name. When we sin, Jesus doesn't just vindicate us, he vindicates his name. The day he's unconcerned with his name, he can be unconcerned about us. This counts for all believers. Also, even for the youngest believers, John says, you know your heavenly father. It's at the very point that we recognize our weakness and our smallness and our need that we look up to find our Father reaching down to us. What a gift of grace just to know him. And for even the most mature believers, did you see how he repeats the same thing twice? With all of their maturity, the thing that still defines the fathers is the fact that they know Jesus. When all the strength of youth familiarity with his word, keeping and abiding have had their maturing effect. In the end, we find it all nurtured what we began with, knowing Jesus. And for young men, the repeated line is, you have overcome the evil one. This is the first mention of Satan in the book. And understanding what John means when he says we have overcome the evil one also helps us to understand where we started the passage with Christ, our advocate. You see, in God's heavenly courtroom, we have the judge, who is God, and we have our advocate, who is Jesus. But there's another character in the scene, and that's the prosecutor. The word Satan means a legal opponent or accuser. And in Revelation 12, it says that Satan is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. In God's heavenly courtroom, the evil one continually accuses you before God. Every time you sin, your accuser is ready to pull out all the evidence against you to condemn you. But you have overcome the evil one. How? Because when your accuser takes you to court, your advocate is right there with you. And he applies his cross to your sin and pleads your case for you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Because Jesus is a propitiation for your sins, you have overcome the evil one. The end is not in doubt. And you become more mature in your faith as this just becomes more real to you. 
The more that Christ as your advocate is embedded in your mind, the more readily you know what to do when the guilt and the accusations come. They lose their power to pull you away from Christ, and instead you take refuge in your advocate and trust his way of love for your life. We need this. I need this every day, every time that I feel irritated by my children, or I feel like I'm, I'm not being treated the way I deserve by my wife. Or every time I feel discouraged because someone else is more gifted than me. Or every time I hear a compliment and I start to well up with self-worship instead of praise to God. I need to fight these sins. I need to obey my Lord. But also when I do sin, instead of running from Jesus, I need to remember who he is. In the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian meets the evil Apollyon. And Apollyon tries to persuade Christian to turn away from Jesus. And one of his tactics is that he reminds Christian of all the ways that Christian has been unfaithful. Christian had nearly given up when he had barely started. He tried wrong ways of getting rid of guilt. He had been lax when he should have been vigilant. He almost turned back when he was frightened. And whenever he talked of his journey and his experiences, inside he desired vain glory in all he said or did. Christian responded to Apollyon's accusations this way. All that you say is true. In fact, there's much more that you have left out. But the prince who I serve and honor is very merciful and most willing to forgive. Our advocate is merciful and most willing to forgive. Let's pray. Lord, who are we that you should show us such grace? Thank you for Jesus. We pray that our lives would magnify the glory and grace of Jesus. Cause your love to be on display in our love for one another. And help us to turn to your grace when we sin. So that the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus might be the banner over our lives. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.